Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Gone Boys, Island Crime, Season 2. The community received an update from police tonight on the cases of three missing First Nations men in the Cowichan Valley. I do feel my son has been hurt because he's always came home without fail. Somebody knows where our boys are and they need to speak. These women are all members of a club no mother wants to be in. Their sons, the lost boys of Cowichan tribes. This was an update from the RCMP's major crime unit on the disappearances of three men from the Duncan area. The most recent was Everett Jones. Local news station Check TV is in Duncan in 2018 as police try to address growing fear in this community. Where have these young men gone? No bodies, no answers, just families left wondering what could have happened to their sons. This is Episode 3, Homies. Today, I'm headed to the Cowichan Valley to meet with Ian Henry's family. Ian Preston Douglas Henry is 26 years old when he disappears in 2015. Ian's mother Phyllis and I have been trading messages online for months. Every once in a while, she sends me a picture of Ian, a new one she has come across. There's a lovely family photo of Ian surrounded by siblings and cousins, He appears to be in his early 20s, good-looking, smiling, at ease. She sends me another of a high school-aged Ian, hair trimmed short, sporting a bright white and black-trimmed hockey jersey. She forwards pieces of information about Ian and always quickly responds when I ask her a question. Once, in the middle of the night, she sends me a prayer. Phyllis lives on the other side of the island, and we have yet to sit down together. It is Ian's father, Joseph Joe, that I meet with in Duncan. He no longer lives here. These days, he lives further up the coast. I meet him in a parking lot outside a Starbucks. He is sitting with family, all dressed in camouflage, huddled together, drinking coffee, and focused on scratch-and-win lottery tickets. Joseph is a quiet man. He is clearly ill at ease. Hello, my name's Joseph Joe. I'm 53 years old. My birthday, November 17th, 1966. Live in Paul River, but I'm originally from Duncan. Been in Paul River for two years now. And you are Ian's father, is that right? Yes, I am. 
I begin by asking him to talk to me about his boy. He was a quiet guy. Well, really worked hard before he got sick. He worked for at least eight to ten years. Then he got sick. And that's when he couldn't work anymore. He had a lot of friends from his work. He liked um, going fishing in our way, like spearing, called spearing. He used to like doing that, rod fishing. You you mentioned when we first started talking, um, Ian getting sick. Can you talk to me about what what was going on? What happened? No. What I heard about was um, he went to a party and I guess somebody put something in his drink. Then he, that's when he um, got sick, went skin, schizophrenic. We don't know when I'm blaming anybody or pointing fingers. I just wish it didn't happen. Like, what was different after that for him? He was talking things and we didn't know, we didn't understand them, but we just went along with it. Some people were making fun of him and all that. He said, don't do that. He's going to have a temper now. This idea that Ian's schizophrenia was brought on by someone lacing his drink strikes me as odd at first. Drugs do not directly cause schizophrenia, but studies have shown certain drugs may trigger symptoms of schizophrenia and may increase the risk of developing schizophrenia. Joseph's mention of Ian being teased reminds me that Brandon too was teased for the behaviors stemming from his brain injury both now gone. At what point do you realize that uh, he has gone missing? Oh, when it first started, we were coming out of that superstore dunking here. We just walked out with our groceries. Then Mary Seymour came up to us and told us he was missing. I said, what? Then um, I messaged Patsy Jones' sister. said, my son might be missing. And that's when we started looking around after that. Do you recall um, the last time that you were with him? I was on a car. Drove right by him and he was on his bike. That was a couple of days and... You had seen him on his bike. Is that how Ian liked to get around? Yes. He always drives to West Saanich to... Goes up to Port Alberni riding his bike. On his bike? Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah. And... So at the time that Ian um, goes missing, is uh, is he on his bike at that point? 
I don't know if he was on his bike or not. Right. Because they finally didn't find no bike, no nothing, just, just some clothes they found, and well, that was about it. Um, so when you say clothes were found, was that where Ian was living, or...? Close by. When uh, Ian first goes missing, what what are you thinking is happening? What what seems likely to you? Um, I just can't believe it. This is not real, is it? Well, that's all I thought. Then. Every day went by, and I realized that he was missing. Because he used to drive up and down the highway or right around in town. Ian Henry, alone on his bike, riding clear across the island. A young man who was regularly seen riding around town just vanished. He has a tattoo that says homies on his right arm and the name Joe tattooed on his leg. And his father, Joseph Joe, believes his son met with foul play. What uh, have you been told over time uh, from the police? What what have they said to you? (laughs) Not really much. They say they keep in contact with us, but no, like they just pushed us away. What do you make of any suggestion that um, the other men from this area who've gone missing, that there could be some kind of connection? That's what I think. Somebody's... Are you known as sick people or something? I don't know. Scary around here. Been a lot of death around here. And people finding people down the river. And just wondering if somebody's killing us. People. That's what I think. Is there anything else about your son or anything I haven't asked you that you want to make sure is said? Just want to um, watch the kids. I don't want this to happen to anybody else. That's really hard. I cry the time to time, trying not to, but so hard just please watch your kids Monica Jones is responsible for me getting this opportunity to meet with Joseph before he heads up the coast she is a community organizer a powerhouse Monica has been instrumental in trying to draw attention to the missing men here Our interview once again takes place in my vehicle, parked in a lot outside a mall in Duncan. 
My name is Monica Jones. I'm just a Couch and Tribe member. I've become an advocate for the missing and murdered. And Monica, you said you are anti to three of the men here. Is that right? Yeah, I'm aunt to Des- grand aunt to Desmond, auntie to Ian Henry, and aunt to Everett Jones. When I first learned Monica is auntie to the three missing men here, it strikes me as a strange coincidence. My husband, who is Indigenous, reminds me that in First Nations, it is often true that there are family connections throughout the community. Still, it is a fact of the case that is worth noting. Monica, it's, um, I think, safe to say it's unusual for someone to be an auntie to three men who have gone missing. What, like, what do you make of that? People don't just disappear. And them being disability is a real big thing for me because they're like lost children out there. And we keep saying it's either to do with drug dealers because of how drug dealers are. We've got a real bad situation here in Couch and with drug dealers. And there's a lot of stories out there. The police even, they know about all these drug dealers because when Ian went missing, a lot of them kept saying the drug dealers took him because he owed money. And he was a person who was schizophrenic and if he owed money, he would pay it. Otherwise he would forget and not know and not remember because it's his memory span. So like, you know, this all just talk from the street people. That's where a lot of the talk does come from. Like we've hit up a lot of leads on the police know who the drug dealers are. And it's just a matter of like, either they find them or they don't, you know, they could find them or they can dig them out or they don't even bother. We don't know, like they don't talk to us. None of them ever come back unless we make enough noise to get some, you know, we want answers, you know, and we'll knock on their door. We've invited them to a lot of meetings, but none of them show. You know, I did the first annual walk in honor of Ian and Everett and Desmond, and it was a really big one. And I did it not knowing what I was getting myself into. We just wanted to let the people know we're still searching for them. And the lots in the community were shocked that we didn't find them because there hasn't been any publicity on them unless we make enough noise to get it going. Why do you think men, the missing men, have failed to get as much attention or focus uh, at this point? I don't know. I've been advocating for the past few years for the men. Um, you know, I got Alistair, I can not go knock on his door. He's well aware of the men missing. Like I try to keep all the leadership, the politician leadership, whatever you call them. I try to keep them all involved and in the loop of everything. And I've asked them, you know, I need to know what has become of this um, final report. And it's just kind of put in the back shelf from what I understood. Monica and Joseph Joe referenced a troubled relationship with the police. It's something I hear time and time again when speaking with Indigenous people about investigations into missing persons. If you're listening from outside of Canada, 
it's important to understand that many Indigenous people have a deep distrust of the police. A distrust rooted in the role the police have had throughout Canada's history to protect and serve the colonial state. So it's not at all surprising to hear that mistrust surface in my conversations about the missing men now. We've got to take care of ourselves and there's a lot of racism. Like I went through a lot of racism in the past few years. But I've learned not to wear what other people throw. You know, it's theirs and they've got a dysfunctional sin in their head that they got to deal with. And if they hate our people and that's theirs, not mine, because we're taught not to hate anybody. But we're going to keep keep searching till we bring them home or find something. You know, we've got no real answers right now other than we're going to keep searching. Before I drive off, Monica shares her concerns about human traffickers being involved in the disappearances. A recent story about an arrest made involving a trio on the island targeting Indigenous girls has heightened that fear here too. Monica tells me she carries protection and warns me to be safe as I say goodbye. Okay, but um, take care, safe yeah. travels back and be careful. Yeah. Keep your doors locked at all times too, because we just never know. Yep, for sure. Yeah, I don't go anywhere unless people know exactly where I'm at. And I always meet in public places only because of that. Well, that's smart. <laughs> I'm getting ready to drive back across the island, but I attempt to reach the chief's office once again. I've been working to arrange an interview with the chief of the Cowichan First Nation for months. I want to hear the leadership's view on what is happening here. The chief has a lot on his plate. He is keeping his people safe during a pandemic. All cultural, social, and religious gatherings have been put on hold. So, I am grateful when he agrees to make time for me. The tribal government offices are housed in a cluster of wooden buildings on the outskirts of town. The administrative offices are nearly empty. I meet with him in a large office space at the back. The chief talks to me about the impact these missing men have on his community. And as he describes the traditions and ceremonies that can't take place while the fate of these men remains unknown, I begin to get a glimmer of just how deeply these disappearances are impacting families here. My name is William Seymour. I am the chief of Coaching Tribes. Coaching Tribes is the biggest band in BC. We have a population of around 5,600 at this point. You know, I feel for my families that are in my community when we look at trying to find answers of their missing loved ones. There's three, I know we've been highlighting these past five years, but there's more. We try to support those families that are with the missing loved ones. We all need closure. 
That closure will never come until we find those loved ones. And that's where I'm coming from. It's, it's the process that we follow as Holmoch people. Holmoch is my language, first nation for you. We're Holmoch we're people. We're, uh, we have set days our teaching. We have a set period for mourning. We have teachings that we follow until our loved one is laid to rest. There's teachings that follows after the loved one is laid to rest. Those teachings are put there to enable us to allow our loved ones to continue their journey to the other side. We don't know what's going on if we're not following our teachings in our way until we can find our loved ones and looking and watching for our loved ones that are missing is not going to stop. So can none of those, those things you described happen for these families until they're found? I guess not. We don't know if they're gone or not. You know, there was talk about following those steps, but the elders cautioned them and said, you're saying they're dead, are they? If they're not what you're doing, you're pushing them to the other side. three men from this small community, all living with some level of mental challenge, gone without a trace. The chief has worked for the First Nations government for over 30 years. He is a strong community leader, but he is without answers when it comes to why men are going missing here. I don't have an answer for that. Today... When I sit with the RCMP, they give me updates. But we have those families that are still walking the trails, walking the bush, still looking for their loved ones. We have them there. And they're getting frustrated because they're not getting anything from the RCMP. When you have those updates, what sense do you have of how active those files are? If they get any leads, they follow up with them. But all the leads that they've gotten, the phone calls that they've gotten, they followed through that and came up with nothing. There's no updates going to the family. There's no updates that should be going to the media that uh, we're still looking. The families haven't given up. It's my understanding that these men all were known to spend time near the highway, either walking or riding their bike. Um, do you have any concern about whether there's 
a connection. Uh, I did have one community member suggest that the, you know, the highway itself should be looked at as perhaps a link in these cases. Does, does that, how does that sit with you? Is there a pattern? It's hard to get a straight answer to that. I haven't got one yet. If they're asked after handicapped community members, we should be aware of them. What is the impact on your community of having these questions left unanswered now for as long as they have been? The first word comes to mind, frustration. Frustrated because we don't have answers. There's hurt because we do miss our loved ones. There's anger. We feel that nothing is being done to find our loved ones. We will continue to support those families. The one thing about our communities, we're all related. So when we have one family hurting, the community hurts. That's just the way of life for us. Relationship is the lifeblood of our community. And uh, so when one hurts, everybody hurts. Everyone is related. And so I don't read too much into the fact that Monica is anti to all three of these men. But I'm looking for other connections. I learn that Ian Henry also worked at Providence Farm for a time the therapeutic farm where Desmond Peter was working before he vanished. I ring the folks at the farm. I'm told there is no one still there who would have been there when Desmond worked at the farm. And they say, I would need a court order for them to access the files. That call is followed by an email explaining that due to privacy, they cannot confirm whether any of these men worked at the farm. Ian Henry also worked in Port Alberni at the same fish plant where Brandon Kearney was once employed. The plant is now closed, has been for years. I tracked down the former owner. None of the names are familiar to him. He was a front office guy and didn't know most of the men on the floor by name. He gives me some contacts for former managers, and I begin trying to reach out to them as well. But what, if anything, do any of these connections mean? What will I need to do in order to understand whether there is a pattern here? To answer that question, I reach deep into my Rolodex for someone I first interviewed decades ago. Gone Boys, we'll be right back after a quick break. 
Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. My name is Kim Rossmo. I'm a professor in the School of Criminal Justice and Criminology at Texas State University. I'm a research professor and I focus on um, criminal investigations, uh, failures of investigations like wrongful convictions, um, the geography of crime, um, geographic profiling of serial crimes. I was a member of the Vancouver Police Department, the last five of which I was the detective inspector in charge of their geographic profiling section. And we provided analytic support for the investigation of um, crimes like serial rape, serial murder, um, robberies, bombings um, to the international police community. Professor Kim Rosmo is a key figure in the missing women case I referenced at the outset of this podcast. He played an important role in recognizing a serial killer was involved in the disappearances in Vancouver. He believed at a time when other law enforcement officials remained skeptical. I was approached by the um, inspector in charge of our um, District 2 area, which included the downtown east side, Skid Road, um, the east parts of the East End, and they had been receiving reports from some of their officers, um, patrol officers, and from some community groups about a number of women who had gone missing that hadn't been found. These women were street sex trade workers. Um, they worked what was known as the low track, which was the, um, the least expensive of the various red light districts in the city. Many of the women were, um, if not all, were, were drug addicted. I pose the questions, any explanation for this has to count for the following. Why is it happening now and wasn't happening before? Why is it happening in Vancouver and not in another Western Canadian city like Regina or Edmonton? Why are we not finding any bodies? And finally, why is this only happening with women and not with men? Uh, The only conclusion I could reach that answered those questions was that they had become victims of a serial killer. Kim Rosmo's report was not enthusiastically received by those in charge. There was a strong disagreement at the time about what his findings really showed. Why do you think that was? I'm sure there's lots of reasons, but when you think when you think about it now, why why do you think that was? I think there was a combination of factors and They included everything from budget cuts that the police department was receiving to groupthink um, on the part of the management. Um, There's a reluctance generally for police departments to accept the theory of a serial killer. Um, And it's easy not to accept the the theory if you don't have bodies. In this case, we only had missing persons. I mean, they're very time-consuming and expensive investigations. There was also issues between the Vancouver Police Department and the RCMP because Picton, who was a suspect that came to light quite early, lived in RCMP jurisdiction, the suburbs of Vancouver, but the women were going missing from Vancouver and there were some, there were disagreements over who was responsible for this investigation. 
none of the missing women um, were still collecting their welfare checks. And that was highly, highly unusual and pointed to the fact that they were no longer alive. Kim Rosmo has had decades to consider why it took so long for authorities to conclude a serial murderer was responsible for women going missing in Vancouver. So this is a, a, not an uncommon phenomenon with, with government organizations. It's referred to as the low probability, high impact problem. So it's very unlikely that it will ever occur, but if it does occur, it's, it's a major um, disaster. And I would say that that certainly was part of the thinking. What's the most likely explanation? Well, um, not a serial killer, because serial killers are rare. But you have to go with what the evidence says and follow the most likely explanation. And that's not what occurred here. And it's not like there weren't lessons that both VPD and the RCMP should have learned from both the Clifford Olson case, which was local, though um, over 10 years ago at this point, or the much more recent Paul Bernardo case in Ontario. And reports were done about the failings. Um, reports have been done on other cases. For example, the Yorkshire Ripper um, case in England, which led to the Byford Review. All these reports said the same things, and all those things it ended up being ignored. So it's maybe part of the explanation. I certainly don't see it, though, as a valid excuse. I lay out the information I've gathered so far with regards to the missing men cases here. And then I ask him to share his thoughts. He is cautious, but agrees to share some insights on the situation here. Here are some things to consider. There's been a lot of research and study done on what's called linkage analysis, which is really what this requires. Um, when you say these incidents are linked, you're talking about they're victims of a serial killer. Um, and we know a fair bit about how serial killers hunt, how they choose their victims, their patterns. The two strongest indicators, if you don't have forensics like DNA or fingerprints, which is the situation here, the two strongest indicators, if you don't have those, um, are going to be spatial temporal proximity. So what I mean by that is how close in space, how close in time are these incidents? So in of the two, the, the location proximity is the most important. So how far apart, if you map these out, how far apart are they? Um, how far apart are they in time? The, the bigger the spread geographically and the bigger the time, the more likely just statistically you're going to have cases that have some similarity. But when you start getting a narrow focus of an area or a narrow focus of time, then that should raise some um, warning signs that there might be linkages between them. Um, you focused a lot on, on the victimology, the similarities in these individuals. One of the next questions is gonna be, what is your base rate? And that's what we tried to do with the missing women. Um, we had a number of cases that were occurring the women all worked within a few blocks of each other. So that, that was a very strong indicator for us. But you also had these disappearances going over a few years. Um, so we wanted some sense of what was normal. What was your base rate? Um, perhaps one of the simplest ways to think about this is what epidemiologists do if they're trying to determine if there's an outbreak of, let's say, tuberculosis. So they want to have some idea of what the normal rate of tuberculosis is in, in the community. And then they, when they see a spike, 
that gives them a warning that maybe an epidemic is breaking out. So same sort of thing. Um, if we have some idea of what this pattern is over time um, in other areas, we have some sense of what's normal. And if we see a spike or a deviation from normal, that's also a warning sign. Um, it's, again, like the missing women, there are no bodies here. So that makes it more confusing. You can't um, do any forensics. Um, you, you don't have autopsies. You can't identify similar methods of, of how they were killed if they, if they were murdered, et cetera. So that's, that's a, a challenge as well. A um, couple of other thoughts. When we talk about missing people, there's generally three major reasons they're missing. One is they have decided voluntarily to go missing. Um, you know, the classic story of the father that goes to the grocery store for um, a jug of milk and he never comes home. Um, so these are cases where people just voluntarily disappear. Um, and it doesn't sound like that is a likely explanation here. Um, another one is they um, are victims of some type of misadventure. They fell into a river or a lake um, or off the side of a mountain. Um, so, you know, I, I have no idea who these individuals are, what their habits were, but um, you'd want to explore those cases where that's certainly a, a possibility that they're not missing, just their body's not been found because it's in a remote wilderness area. Then the third is they're victims of homicide. Um, and that tends to get uh, a lot of the attention, um, but you need to weed out the other possibilities first. What is the pattern over time? Is this a spike? Or, as Kim Rossmo phrased it, a deviation over time? These are questions I hope to have answered by the RCMP. And there are other questions I need answers to. One of the questions I would have is, how would such a killer identify victims that have a mental disability? So if you have a situation where um, the killer is attacking prostitutes, well, he goes to a red light district. Girls are giving him the look. They get into the car. It's very easy to acquire your victims. If you see a man walking down the highway, how do you know he's mentally disabled? Also, it's rare that offenders are 100% successful. So there should be some examples or instances where the offender tried to get someone into his car and was unsuccessful. Um, and those people could report what happened to the police. The police should be looking for such um, examples or instances um, or anything else that is suspicious. It's something the police should be looking for um, in, in context of all these cases, in context of the timeline and in context of the geography. Uh, I like to think of a crime as a, the tip of an iceberg. And there's a lot of stuff going on below the surface before the crime actually happens. Um, often a lot of search behavior on the part of the offender. Um, so these are things that can actually be very helpful for solving the crime. But like I say, you have to consider the other possibilities. Are these um, missing men, would they only walk on the highway? Would they ever walk through the, you know, the forests? You know, just sort of what is their behavior um, to determine what they were at risk of? And so you want to eliminate the, the other possibilities and then see what you're left with. And then Professor Rosmo suggests I take a look at things from a perspective I have not yet given due weight. 
Again, think of it from the perspective of the offender. They, they often want easy to access victims. I think that in some cases along highways, uh, and we've seen this with serial killers in the United States, truck stops, there's a lot of hitch hooking going on or, or um, people that cater to the, to the truckers offering sexual services. And the reason this is important is it makes it very easy for an offender to access victims because they'll willingly get into the vehicle. Like, why fight a woman off the street when you can get one that will voluntarily get into your vehicle? And this is why at the street level, sex trade workers are at a much greater risk, both for violence generally from customers, but also from um, serial predators, some of them who are killers. So, you know, that would be one of the things to consider is, why is this offender doing it this way? Um, what mistakes has he made? Uh, who are the surviving potential victims who got away? Um, what can they say? Um, are there any similarities in descriptions? Or the offender, well, you know, now you've got some um, serious evidence that you, you need to um, consider and figure out like a game plan from that. Finally, he leaves me with a disturbing thought and one I can't stop thinking about as I work to finish this story and get it out to the public. I hate to say this, Laura, but sometimes it just ends up being a big unknown until there are more victims. Each case adds to you know your certainty level. Look how many it was before we could um, even start talking about a police response to the missing women. And just like that, I'm back in the late 90s in Vancouver. The body count of missing women in the downtown east side is rising. And yet the possibility of a serial killer is being ignored. Could that be happening here, now? And there's that question. Are there any examples of someone getting away? As I listen to Professor Rosmo on this point, I'm reminded of something I read on a Reddit post a while back about a man up island who claimed just that. In episode four, I'm following the trail that Kim Rosmo has laid out for me. The database uh, has built into it uh, algorithms. It does automated checking all the, all the time. Every time a new information comes in, it's always checking. Uh, and it has an algorithm looking for uh, patterns of that sort, uh, perpetrator patterns. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime Season 2, Gone Boys. And now, my request to you. Are you hearing any connections between the missing men I might have missed? Do you know any of these men personally? Is there something about any one of these cases that I should know? Brandon, Desmond, Ian, gone. If you have information, please reach out to me at laura at laurapalmer.ca. Also, please rate and review Island Crime. It helps stories like Ian's travel beyond this island and perhaps to reach someone who knows something. <laughs>